Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, Episode 12, The Apollo Program. After President Kennedy's May 25, 1961 speech committing the United States to a manned lunar landing, the goal of the Apollo program instantly changed from a manned circumlunar flight to a manned lunar landing. NASA Administrator James Webb immediately reoriented the whole of NASA around the Apollo program. Webb gave operational responsibility for Apollo to Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens, the number three at NASA. Below Siemens, however, NASA was not organized to even administer the now massive Apollo program in mid-1961. A total reorganization of NASA was underway to orient the agency around the Apollo program and to manage all of the new contracts, construction, and other activities arising from Apollo. Webb would eventually establish the Office of Manned Spaceflight at NASA headquarters. He would appoint Dr. Bernard Holmes as the director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, with Joseph Shea as deputy director. Under this reorganization, NASA headquarters would keep a far closer eye on the Apollo program than it had on the Mercury program. The reorganization, however, would not take place until November 1st, 1961. In the meantime, Siemens started organizing a series of ad hoc committees across NASA that would examine the various needs of the Apollo program. In the latter half of 1961, there were three big categories of engineering problems that NASA needed to get started on for the Apollo program. The first was the construction of the spacecraft to get to the moon and back. The second was constructing all the physical buildings and other facilities needed to build, support, test, and launch the new spacecraft and the new rocket that would be needed to reach the moon. Finally, NASA also needed to develop a powerful new rocket to land on the moon. Because most of these tasks would be handled by contractors, NASA's priority was to determine what it needed and to award the contracts as quickly as possible so that there would be enough time to bring the contractors on board and to build everything that was needed. The first major engineering decision was the spacecraft. Due to the tight timeline imposed to land on the moon, NASA decided on a basic capsule design that was a larger version of the Mercury capsule and capable of seating three astronauts. There were some within NASA who wanted to opt for a lifting body design to allow for some controlled flight in the atmosphere. But such a lifting body design would have required far more effort to develop, and there was simply no time for that. NASA would, however, revisit the lifting body design in the late 1960s and early 1970s when designing the Space Shuttle. By the end of July 1961, NASA had sent out requests for proposals to contractors for the Apollo spacecraft design. 
NASA awarded the contract to build the Apollo spacecraft to North American Aviation. North American was not chosen because of its proposed design. The Martin Company, the company that had worked on Vanguard, had actually proposed a better spacecraft. But Webb decided to go with North American because this contractor had the longest history with NASA dating back to NACA. Webb believed that this history made North American the most straightforward choice. NASA also awarded contracts to MIT to figure out how exactly to get to the moon in terms of guidance and navigation. Navigation refers to determining the exact location of the spacecraft in space. Guidance refers to directing the spacecraft to another desired point in space. The issues of navigation and guidance were not so easy to resolve. At this point in 1961, scientists had put far more effort into figuring out how to navigate to planets like Mars and Venus than the Moon. Thus, while NASA was working on the spacecraft in the means to get to the Moon, the job of making sure we could actually navigate there was handed over to MIT. The one major problem that NASA could not yet plan for was the actual landing on the moon. NASA simply didn't have enough information to figure out what it needed yet to enable a landing. There was no real information available to NASA at the time about the lunar surface. NASA needed to consider and address unknowns like whether the exhaust from a landing rocket would kick up loose rocks and dust that would interfere with vision and damage the rockets. There was also the possibility that the spacecraft could simply sink into the surface of the moon if the surface was not as solid or dense as it appeared. NASA did, however, have an existing program, the Ranger program, which was trying to send probes to the moon. The Ranger program was one possible avenue of obtaining the information needed to design a proper spacecraft for a lunar landing. More about that in a future episode. The second major engineering problem for NASA was the need for new facilities to build the spacecraft and the new rockets that would carry men to the moon. NASA also needed new buildings to house an explosive growth in the number of employees to oversee the Apollo program. Between June and October 1961, NASA began acquiring several new facilities. Most of the new facilities related to the testing and development of the rocket that would carry men to the moon. As I'll discuss further in a moment, NASA had not yet decided on the exact rocket for the Apollo missions. But NASA knew that whatever rocket was chosen, massive new facilities would be needed to build, test, and launch the rocket. First, NASA would need a new launch facility. The existing facilities at Cape Canaveral were not sufficient no matter which new rocket design they chose to get to the moon. Several sites for new launch facilities were considered, including sites in California and Texas. Ultimately though, Florida and the area near the existing Cape Canaveral site made the most sense. 
After all, experienced personnel were already there. Moreover, the launch site needed to be near water so that the new rocket could be transported there. Since existing rocket manufacturing and testing facilities were in Alabama, it made sense that the launch site should be somewhere in or near the Gulf Coast area. The site ultimately selected was Merritt Island, and specifically an area just north of the existing Cape Canaveral launch site. Today, this area is known as the John F. Kennedy Space Center. At the same site, NASA began to construct the Massive Vehicle Assembly Building, or VAB. This would be the building where the new rocket, whichever rocket they chose, would be stacked before launch. Due to the unpredictable weather and the amount of time needed to stack large rockets, the decision was made to build an enclosed facility. To this day, the Vehicle Assembly Building remains one of the largest buildings in the world by volume. In fact, the building is so large that it literally has its own weather. Under some conditions, rain clouds can form under the ceiling of the vehicle assembly building. Second, NASA needed new manufacturing and testing facilities for the rocket. NASA already had static testing and manufacturing facilities in Huntsville, Alabama, where Werner von Braun's rocket engineering team and the Marshall Space Flight Center were located. But the existing testing facilities were not large enough for the rockets intended to launch men to the moon. NASA began looking for new areas to test and build rockets in the same region, once again focused on areas located near water for transportation reasons. To build the new rockets, NASA selected an old factory in Michoud in the northeastern part of New Orleans, Louisiana. The factory used to produce engines for tanks during the Second World War, and then cargo aircraft. By the time NASA acquired it, the facility was no longer in use and simply sitting on a list of government-owned surplus. For the static test firings of the rockets, that's testing the rocket engines on the ground, NASA acquired 54 square kilometers of largely unpopulated land in southwestern Mississippi. Because the test firing of the engines would create a lot of noise, NASA also acquired a 518 square kilometer buffer zone. In fact, because of this buffer zone, an entire community in Gainesville, Mississippi had to be moved. A third facility that NASA acquired was the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. The Manned Space Flight Center would house the Space Task Group, headed by Robert Gilruth. The Space Task Group was created to oversee the manned spaceflight programs, which at the time of its creation was only Project Mercury. Until President Kennedy declared that the United States would go to the moon in May 1961, the Space Task Group was considered a temporary entity. Because the only project that it oversaw was Mercury, and because it was uncertain whether the proposed Apollo program would ever have a future until Kennedy's speech, the thought was that the space task group would be disbanded after the Mercury program ended. 
Because of the perception that the space task group was temporary, the group had not been given a proper home. Technically, the space task group reported to the Goddard Space Flight Center in Beltsville, Maryland, because it was part of NASA's programs to make practical use of outer space. But the personnel in the space task group were physically located at NASA's Langley Research Facility in Virginia. Now that the Apollo program was definitely a thing, the space task group was instantly given permanent status and needed its own facility. NASA ultimately selected a site in Houston, Texas. The new Manned Space Flight Center would be located on a thousand acres donated by Rice University to the United States. NASA's decision to place the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston led to accusations of undue political influence by Vice President Johnson, who was formerly a United States Senator from Texas. But in fact, Houston simply fit everything that NASA needed. NASA needed an area with educational institutions with advanced scientific studies, ample electrical power and other utilities, large acreage, room for housing, proximity to water, proximity to industrial enterprise, and proximity to air transportation, among other reasons. Houston at the time was a boomtown that offered all of these things. Following the announcement of the move to Houston, there was a lot of uncertainty within the space task group. Over a thousand NASA employees had spent years building their lives in eastern Virginia. They would have to uproot their families and move to Houston if they wanted to continue working on manned spaceflight. Of the 1,152 employees polled, however, only 84 said they would not move. Robert Gilruth would be among those to move to Houston, and he would become the new director of the Houston Manned Spaceflight Center. All of the construction projects for the Manned Spaceflight Center in Texas, the rocket manufacturing and testing facilities in Mississippi and Louisiana, and the new Merritt Island launch site in Florida would take a significant amount of time and effort. NASA Administrator Webb decided that rather than hiring a bunch of new NASA personnel to manage the construction of these new facilities, he would simply call upon the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. This helped speed things along as the Army Corps was able to begin work right away. The final and perhaps most consequential engineering decision was the selection of the launch vehicle or the rocket. The moon rocket would be what is called the pacing item for the Apollo program. A pacing item is the thing on a list of tasks that is absolutely necessary and will take the longest time. The selection of the moon rocket here would dictate the limits of the spacecraft's design in terms of size and weight, how a lunar landing might be achieved, and the timing of a lunar landing. Clearly, NASA would need a very powerful rocket, more powerful than anything currently available. But NASA was not certain exactly how powerful. At the time, there were a number of rocket designs on the drawing board and in development. 
Each of these designs were built around the F-1 rocket engine, which was still in development. The F-1 engine was designed to put out 1.5 million pounds of thrust. This was leaps and bounds above what any other single rocket engine could do at the time. On the drawing board were four rocket designs built around this F-1 engine. The first was the Saturn C-3 rocket, which would have two F-1 engines in the first stage for a total of 3 million pounds of thrust. The second was the Saturn C-4, which would have four F-1 engines for a total of 6 million pounds of thrust. The third option was the Saturn C-5, with five F-1 engines for 7.5 million pounds of thrust. Then there was the really crazy option for the Saturn C-8, also known as the Nova rocket. The Nova would have put in eight F-1 engines in the first stage for a whopping 12 million pounds of thrust. Just to put that in perspective, the Nova would have been almost twice as powerful as the most powerful rocket ever built even to this day. Selecting the rocket for the Apollo program was about balancing capabilities and timing. For example, the Saturn C-3 rocket with the two F-1 engines and 3 million pounds of thrust was already undergoing development and probably could be ready relatively soon. So the Saturn C-3 option had timing in its favor. But using a rocket with only 3 million pounds of thrust would seriously limit the capability of the spacecraft that could be sent to the moon, because it would need to be a lot lighter. In the alternative, the spacecraft might have to be sent up into Earth orbit piecemeal and connected together in space before going to the moon. But launching multiple rockets to build a single spacecraft to go to the moon would take time and increase the risk of failure and increase costs simply by virtue of needing more launches. On the other extreme was the Nova rocket with eight F-1 engines and 12 million pounds of thrust. The Space Task Group, which was overseeing the Apollo program, tended to favor this option. With 12 million pounds of thrust, a full spacecraft for a lunar landing could be launched into orbit in one go, and there would be enough weightlifting capability to incorporate redundancies into the spacecraft to ensure mission success. But the development of the Nova rocket would take significantly more time. For example, the rocket engineers, like Werner von Braun's team, would need to figure out how to even test eight F-1 engines on the ground. Such a test would require massive new facilities. All of this research, testing, and development meant that Kennedy's 1970 deadline might not be feasible if NASA relied on the Nova rocket. Between July and October 1961, one of the various ad hoc committees that Siemens created to manage the Apollo program convened to decide on the launch vehicle. In literature, 
This is referred to as the Golovin Committee. The committee included members of the Department of Defense and NASA. The idea was that NASA and the DoD should coordinate on the selection of the launch vehicle because they might be able to choose something that was useful to both NASA and the military and so could share the cost of research and development. The committee decided that, at minimum, the rocket needed to have four F-1 engines with at least six million pounds of thrust, which was the Saturn C-4 design. This type of rocket would also have uses for the military. There was also consideration of perhaps a five F-1 engine configuration, or the Saturn C-5 design, for added lift. The problem for NASA for both the four-engine and five-engine design, however, was that neither rocket would be capable of lifting a spacecraft on a direct ascent to the moon. Direct ascent was a mode of reaching the moon that referred to landing an entire spacecraft with the return rocket and all on the surface of the moon and then bringing the entire spacecraft back to Earth. In the early stages of planning for the Apollo missions, this was the favored approach because it was the simplest. But the Saturn C4 and Saturn C5 would not provide enough lift to enable this mode of reaching the moon. Instead, with the Saturn C4 and the Saturn C5, the only way to reach the moon would be using Earth orbital rendezvous. This was a mode in which the spacecraft would be launched into orbit in two or more pieces on separate rockets. They would then dock in orbit and form a single spacecraft before heading to the moon. This option was strongly disfavored during the early Apollo planning stages, because no one had ever performed a rendezvous in space and did not know how hard that might be. Because the selection of the rocket depended on the mode that NASA would ultimately choose to get to the moon, either direct ascent or Earth orbital rendezvous, the Golovin Committee did not choose any rocket at all. Instead, the committee recommended that NASA first decide the question of mode. But in order to make President Kennedy's deadline to reach the moon before the end of the decade, a decision had to be made and it had to be made as soon as possible. So to just keep the ball moving, on November 16, 1961, NASA Administrator James Webb and the Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara made a policy decision to focus on building the F-1 engine in the Saturn C-4 design. The engine and the Saturn C-4 would at the very least be useful to the military and provide an option for reaching the moon to NASA, which currently had no options at all. The debate over the selection of the moon rocket and the choice to focus on the Saturn C-4 design, at least for now, did highlight a growing problem for NASA. NASA needed to confront the distinct possibility that a direct ascent to the moon was not possible. Multiple launches probably would be needed to build a single spacecraft in Earth orbit and then send that spacecraft to the moon. 
This meant that NASA needed to start examining a whole other problem, the problem of orbital rendezvous. And this will lead us to yet another NASA program, the Gemini program. More about that next time. Interested in seeing photos related to this episode? Check out spaceracehistorypodcast.com or click on the link in the description for this episode.